somewhere in space. This may all be happening right now. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. At the Movies. An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I've seen Star Wars about a dozen times. I've seen Star Wars 17 times. 17 times. Star Wars? Uh, 24 times. 40 times and it was great each time. 45. About 57 times. You can never get too much of Star Wars. I... I've seen the first Star Wars 153 times. All together, we have seen Star Wars 324 times. We've been here for six days and it's great! Hello there. Welcome to episode 7 of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. My name is Stephen Danley, and wow, before you can even really catch your breath or fully process a new Star Wars movie, another one's already come and quickly gone from theaters. Solo's situation is a difficult one to read when you're juxtaposing fan reaction with box office numbers. In fact, I don't even feel right doing so. For as many things as it had going against it, the fact that it even exists at all is somewhat of a miracle, and something I'm really grateful for. However short-lived and enjoyable Star Wars movie's life on the big screen is still special, to me at least. And with Solo's opening day falling on May 25th, there was no way I'd pass up the opportunity to see the film in a meaningful place. Of the five times I ended up seeing it in theaters, a viewing at Grandma's Chinese Theater on the anniversary of the original Star Wars opening there was easily my favorite. By then, I'd luckily already been able to catch an early screening to get those first viewing jitters out of the way, and I could just sit back, revel in the surroundings, and savor the movie for what it was. Semi-schlocky pulp entertainment with a Star Wars imprint. But as is the rule, this podcast isn't really the place for me to ramble on with my opinions on the new films. For that, definitely check out episode 90 of the Star Wars Collector's Archive podcast, where we keep up the fun tradition of laying out our impressions from a vintage toy perspective. And for those truly inquiring minds, you can also read my original review over on the blog at StarWarsAtTheMovies.com. Anyway, what I do feel is relevant to this show is to take a snapshot of the franchise's fleeting movie-going present. Living in Los Angeles offers the chance to experience these new movies and the way they're marketed in a unique way. This is a big, big city where mainstream filmed entertainment is still put on a pedestal, for better and for worse. It's also one that requires driving considerable distances on a daily basis, so I always get a kick out of seeing Star Wars billboards and other gigantic ads popping up around town. Being in close proximity to some of the premieres is pretty exciting, too. Seeing them construct that near-life-size Millennium Falcon on Hollywood Boulevard for Solo's debut at the El Capitan Theater will always be one of those vivid Star Wars memories. L.A. has iconic cinema venues and dingy little local movie houses that stand apart from the big chain multiplexes, and it's in these types of theaters that I've really tried to make the most of seeing the recent slate of films, because it's the closest one can get to that pure experience from the past. And the chances are fading. Walking up to the Chinese theater and thinking about what had transpired there 41 years prior was a bit of a trip. The image ingrained in most fans' minds is a rabid, massive crowd descending upon that movie-going mecca for one reason. Star Wars. 
But in 2018, aside from a small table peddling a few items of solo merchandise outside, it was really just another regular crazy Friday afternoon of tourists and costumed entrepreneurs drifting about on the Walk of Fame. Things will never be the same, but I'm sure glad that the theaters are still there. Another time-honored ingredient that I'm very thankful survives is a Star Wars poster that leans towards an old-fashioned sensibility. I'll say that, in a vacuum, the standard one-sheet for Solo does a really nice job of simulating that spaghetti space-western aesthetic with its interplay of those warm oranges and the white space. The movie's landscapes and gunslingers have a somewhat painterly look to them that's rarely seen in modern blockbuster posters. But the problem lies in that these likenesses had already been repeated exhaustively earlier in the film's promotion, and in an unfortunately duplicitous fashion. With those seemingly fresh designs lifted from another artist's music album covers, it's just really too bad, because it'll always take away from an otherwise successful theatrical poster. But thanks to this episode's guest, fans were treated to something else that's tangible and genuine. From Indiana Jones to Star Wars, Australia-based Mark Ratz has been working as a traditional poster artist on Lucasfilm projects for over a decade, and his most recent effort for Solo culminated in a work of art that is a classic in every sense of the word. Mark was kind enough to tell the story of how this wonderful piece came to be, as well as what led him to a career in immortalizing pop culture with pencils, paint, and Copic markers. A pertinent part of that story is Mark's introduction to Star Wars, and the setting in which that takes place is always of interest to me. So as is the standard practice here, I wanted to give a bit of background on the theater in question. In this case, the Stirland City in central Johannesburg, South Africa. The Golden City, South Africa's Johannesburg. Originally opened in 1969 at the intersection of Claim and Pline Streets, the Stir City was Johannesburg's first multi-screen cinema complex and the city's premier movie-going venue. Clad in marble with distinctly 1960s luxury architecture, each of its three auditoriums apparently had their own distinct theme, with the Stir Cine 1000, which held 886 seats, being the largest, and appropriately the one where Mark saw Star Wars. Then there was the Stir Cine 700 with 659 seats, and the more intimate Stir Cine 300 with 255. Upstairs on the top floor was the Stir Cine 100, which was initially used as a private screening place for film critics and later opened to the public. At some point in the 1980s, additional small screens were added on the ground floor. On July 30th, 1987, a car bomb detonated on nearby Court Street, injuring 26 people and causing damage to the Stirland. The theater would close in the late 1990s, and by the early 2000s it was abandoned and left derelict for years. But it's now apparently being converted to flats, with shop owners on the ground floor already conducting business. Echoes of its cinematic past still stand within its walls, and I'm sure it was an amazing place to see movies in its prime. All right. With that, it's time to head to the Western Australian capital of Perth for the feature presentation. And now for our feature presentation.
Um, I was born um, in South Africa in the late 1950s, and um, I was always interested in, in art of some description. I remember my mum found a drawing that I'd done when I was probably about three or four years old, which clearly indicates that, you know, I was always... Uh, you know, in, into drawing, and it's not—it's not just a generic sort of scribble. It's actually not a not a bad, um, you know, drawing in its own right. So clearly, it was something that I always wanted to do. Um, we didn't have much exposure to comics where where I was uh, growing up, um, other than some of the the um, British uh, comics and things that they had, like Dandy and Beano. Um, so it's not that I had a great exposure to the DC or the Marvel universe at that point in time, but what I was exposed to, uh, much to my delight was Hal Foster's Prince Valiant, um, mm. Strip, which was a weekly strip, which was published every uh, every Sunday on the back page of our of our Sunday Times newspaper. Uh, so that that was an Arthurian character, right? Yes, that's quite correct. Yes, he 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 developed the, the character around a, a fictitious knight who who ended up sort of within the the um, Arthur circle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was beautifully produced, magnificently drawn. Mm-hmm. And although you know I was very young then, I'm talking about the early sixties. Um, I knew that what set him apart from anybody else, and what what was required if you were going to do art, was you had to know everything about everything. <laughs> in that I understood that he knew, although I didn't know the mechanics of what I was looking at, I did understand that he knew um, composition. He knew how to draw people. He knew how to draw animals. He knew all about armor. He knew all about castles. He knew all about uh, vegetation and things like that. So I, I knew then immediately that in order to be good, any good at, at drawing, you'd have to really be good at everything. Um, so I used to I try and copy those comic strips every week i would take the, the strip and and r- try and replicate it in my childish fashion yeah um and and i learned an enormous amount through that um just in the way that that he was able to convey um the messages that he was able to mm-hmm. um and then probably sort of in the mid 60s my folks took me to see snow white and the seven dwarves and i was terrified of the movie i mean this thing scared scared the hell out of me um but um what i what i did realize was i was looking at at art that was moving on the screen and i'd never been more excited about anything in my life that you could actually make a drawing come alive and there and then i decided that i wanted to work for walt disney um, unfortunately, that couldn't happen because you know I'm stuck in the middle of Africa, and uh, you know it wasn't like you could just jump in a plane and zoom off. Although I was, I was very fortunate, a friend of mine who was an exchange student at the school, at the high school I was at, uh, he was from Los Angeles, and he took some of my drawings back and posted them off to Disney on my behalf. And I got a letter from Disney, I think in about 1973, I got a letter from Disney inviting me to go to Cal Arts because I felt that I would be um, a great candidate to work in the animation department at Disney at some point. Wow. So that was that was a, a high point 
uh, in my my life then getting this letter straight from Disney saying, look, you know, we like what we see. Try and you know get across to Cal Arts. But again, it, it wasn't practical. I mean, it's not something that I could just I could just do. I was still relatively young then, mm-hmm. but it was something that was deeply embedded in my in my life. Um, that that I wanted to work for Disney. I wanted to work in animation, and of course, I wanted to do art. So it's something that I've always done, and uh, and you know, from then it was just something that I pursued. I taught taught myself animation because I couldn't. There was no one to teach me right. um, where I lived, um, and got very involved in two D animation in the seventies, okay. the late seventies, and that's sort of how this the story started. Yeah. So you were already an artist, you're, you're pursuing things on your own. How did you find your way to Star Wars? Well, Star Wars, I was in the army when Star Wars came out. And uh, my dad had seen it. He, he did a lot of business travel. Um, and, uh, and he had seen it in London. And, uh, and he tell well, I phoned home one evening and he said that he'd just seen this amazing movie and that I had to see it. <laughs> so the next time I was out on R&R, uh-huh. um, we went to go and see the movie as a family. We all zoomed off to one of the, the big cinemas that we had. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, I mean, I was, I was totally blown away by what I saw. Now, in fairness, it's not that I loved the story. I liked the story very much mm-hmm. because I was thoroughly entertained. But because I was interested in the process of movie making as much as I was, sure. um, I was far more interested in, in how on earth George had, had done what he had done. I was fascinated by the props that had been made. I, I was blown away by Ralph Macquarie's designs, Joe Johnston's work, the work of the guys at Industrial Light and Magic, like Lorne Peterson and Phil Tippett and Dennis Murin and Steve Gawley. You know, these people just, I was just blown away. And so, so what really got me even more excited, besides just seeing a movie that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed, was just seeing once again art elevated to a level in a way that, that I saw in Hal Foster's work, knowing that these guys had just exceeded what what you would normally assume would be needed to do a job. Right. And, and by, by exceeding them, by, t- by pushing the bar as high as they had, they created something that was just mind-numbingly, you know, amazing. I mean, there was just no other way to describe it. And so what I then decided was I wanted to work for George Lucas. So the only thing I learned about myself was that I'm obviously very fickle because I decided (laughs) I wanted to work for Walt and then had a drop of a hat that tried and decided to work for for George. Um, And and that's how I got introduced to, to the Star Wars saga. For two movies to have an impact on an artist, I'd say Snow White and Star Wars are, are it's understandable <laughs> that you walked away feeling mm. like <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. I mean I was young when I was very young when I saw Snow White, but I'll I'll never forget the feeling that I had when I saw that and just realizing that you could make art live and, and, and I'll I'll just will never forget that that yeah. feeling at all. Yeah. And uh in terms of the, the other Star Wars films, do you have memories of seeing those in the theaters when they originally came out as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I was, I was, you know, very much wanting to see the movies when they came out. I was again in the army when both of the other two came out. So when I had an opportunity to see them, um, you know, it was one of those things that you just had to, had to make a plan to Mm -hmm. go and 
and and see and and of course you know at the end of empire strikes back which i still think is probably one of the finest star wars movies ever made um you know i i, I was like everybody else you know looking at this and realizing we've got another three years to wait all about this <laughs> the story of of i'm your father i mean i remember going crazy about that yeah. but but again just relishing the design relishing the, the way that the, the movies have been made and also admiring you know the the to the extent to which the special effects themselves had had evolved yeah and that they were able to create so much more complicated visual spectacle on the screen um you know that they were just they were just jaw-dropping amazing when did creating art become a, a career prospect for you so how did you get your start you know i suppose it was something that i always wanted to do I was very involved in computer animation and computer graphics in the early uh, 1980s. I think my first 2D uh, um, computer animated short film I finished in December of 1985. So it's it's a long time ago. But it, I got really involved in that side of the industry and and you know exploited the great tools that were being invented by way of computer graphics until I got tired of them. Um, because I found after a while that those tools started giving away. I felt that that animation was losing its soul in that it was more about shaders and renders and, and things rather than about telling stories. Now, I'm talking obviously about back in in the sort of very late 80s, early 90s, um, where so many things were being done that really were just being done to show off the fact that people could use computer graphics. Yeah. And, uh, and so I sort of... I got a bit tired of it, and in the about probably about 90, 1994, somewhere around there, I was a patron of the Nelson Mandela Children's Fund in South mm-hmm. Africa, which was one of uh, President Mandela's um, charities that he had. Mm-hmm. And I was very privileged to be invited every year to a very small luncheon that he had uh, on an annual basis. So, you know, you'd be there at luncheon, sitting next to you would be. Yeah, sort of Tony Blair or, you know, or Princess Diana's brother or something like that. So mm-hmm. it was pretty surreal. Yeah. But, uh, you know, being at those things, it was amazing. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because somebody asked me at one of those, would I be prepared to do a drawing of President Mandela that they could use as a fundraising um, item? At, okay. a, at a, a charity event that they were doing. And, of course, I hadn't drawn traditionally for nearly 15 years at that point. Oh, it had okay. all been done, you know, on you know, you've all been working on your computer and trying to digitize things using packs and very, very crude styluses and mice and things like that. So I hadn't really drawn traditionally for many years. And uh, so I went back home and I remember digging out my pencils, which I hadn't seen for years, and my block of paper. And I sat in the dining room and I drew this drawing of Mandela. And um, I just remember it was like an epiphany because there were no buzzing CPUs. There were no there were no keyboards. There was no mouse. It was just me, a pencil and a piece of paper. It was wonderful. Um, so I did. I did the drawing, and uh, which they which I really enjoyed. And I realised then that I had to get back to doing traditional art again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when I say traditional art, of course, I mean with pencils and paper and, and paints and things. And so I started re-looking at at um, opportunities um, to start to do artwork um, in its truest form. I still continued, and, and in fact, still do today work 
in the digital realm. Yeah. Um, but with the movie work that I do, it's, it's only traditional work. I don't use any digital tools to mm-hmm. do the traditional work that I do. Having that kind of split, it's got to be refreshing on, on the mind if you can separate the two. I didn't, I didn't really realize how starved I had been mm-hmm. of the, the, the creative process of traditional art. Um, until I did that drawing, and I think that 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 blew me away because it was it was something that just seemed right. Mm-hmm. Something just seemed it just all seemed to click together again, and and I found it incredibly rewarding to be able to do that. And uh, so I was I was really taken aback, but very grateful that I'd done it. So uh, what brought you to to Lucasfilm, and and then eventually to Australia, right? Yes, that's right. Well, the Australian story is a long one. It's another. It's a book that you could write as to why we ended up here. But essentially, what what happened was through the work that I did in the early days in computer animation, computer graphics, I did get to meet some of my heroes from Industrial Light and Magic um, because it was such a small industry and everyone was sharing information and things. So it was it was one of those those sort of sideways steps that that just had a happy result. Um, it's not to say that I knew people well, but because of, of that, I got to do my first work for Lucasfilm probably about 27 years ago. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't traditional art. That was all to do with graphics and uh, computer graphics and, and visual effects and things like that. And so it, it was a different medium, and I was working with their licensees. I wasn't working directly for Lucasfilm themselves. So it, the, the association with Lucasfilm went back a long, long way. I'm often asked what was the first artwork I did, traditional artwork I did for Lucasfilm, and I have to say to my shame that I actually can't remember what it was. <laughs> but I do remember the first uh, artwork that, that I did that caught George's attention specifically, um, which of course then exponentially just gave me the most amazing opportunities because he knew the work my work specifically and that was a cartoon that i did of him as yoda i did the drawing of him and that was actually gifted to a very good friend of mine who's a senior editor of cinefix magazine okay and i did it for her um and and i remember one one morning waking up and there was this very official email from skywalker ranch um <laughs> asking whether I, whether i was responsible for this drawing of george <laughs> and of course i was you know i mean I, I was one of thousands of artists in the lucasfilm stable at that point and i'd never had direct contact with with the top echelon at that point and so i was i was understandably nervous that maybe i'd offended the godfather <laughs> and um and so I, I tentatively replied that yes i had done it and they immediately came back and they said well george loves it so much he wants to buy the original would i be prepared to sell it to him so i said well unfortunately i don't have it but he knows who does because he knows jody um personally she's dealt with him a lot in the writing of the magazine so uh, through her generosity um, uh, she agreed that George could acquire the artwork from her. And that was the first piece that, of, of mine uh, that George acquired. Okay. And I got a nice letter, a nice letter from him, you know, saying how much he liked it. And, uh, and I believe that it's the only artwork in his collection of which there, there is a copy. And the reason why I say that is because when you go to Lucasfilm, you know, George has bought a lot of my original art, so when you go to Lucasfilm, sometimes you can go to the archivists and they arrange a little reunion with you and your art. So you can go <laughs> wandering around, wandering around the complex. Visiting hours, yeah. and, 
That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, you go and visit them and you give a little hug to your heart, you know, you see it again. And um and and they were looking at the database the first time around and and and, sh- and she said to me, I don't understand because there are two for the Yoda piece. And there are no other there are no other pieces that have two entries. It must be a mistake. You know, so she looked and looked again and suddenly realized that in fact what had happened was George had had ordered a very high-quality Latha reproduction to be made. Uh-huh. And that piece is hanging in Lucasfilm offices at the Presidio. Oh. And the other one, apparently, he actually has with himself, with him at home, apparently. Okay. Um, that's, <laughs> that's what I've been told. So that, that's a very nice bookend to that story. Looking at your, your work that you've done, uh, your traditional movie work, I mean, your style mm. is so perfectly paired with Lucasfilm's kind of movie-making spirit. So when did they catch on that you had a certain knack for it and start giving you those opportunities to start representing you know, things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones? The first um, piece they asked me to do, I was asked to do, was a teaser poster for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And... The idea with that was obviously to create a poster that would that would get the fans excited about the upcoming movie, um, and it was it was invigorating to be invited to do that. Um, and so what happened was I used to get uh, photographs, early photographs that hadn't been released to the press or to the public, and uh, you know I was really excited about the project. I was never wild about the idea of the alien thing, but I liked seeing Harrison in the in the <laughs> Indiana Jones gear again. Sure. And um and, and it was it was really exciting to do. And and so it it was also a very complicated one to do because the problem with doing a new movie post is that you can't give away any of the story. So and it's not to say I knew the story, but I knew more about the story than most people did. So, right. uh, you know, I, I had great ideas and I said, oh, no, you can't show this and you can't show that. And I think at that point, I wasn't even allowed to show any of the other members of the cast. Um, the only ones I was allowed to show were, were Harrison and Shiloh. It was slightly frustrating because, you know, you had all these great ideas, but you couldn't, I couldn't really exploit them. Yeah. But that was the first, the first one that I did. And, uh, you know, again, I was I was really happy because George uh, purchased the original artwork from me um, as you know as as a separate as a separate agreement, which was which was lovely. Getting more into your your Star Wars work, I mean, I've seen mm. you know your anniversary posters for Return of the Jedi and and Star Wars. I mean, they. Mm. They capture yes. these familiar likenesses that, you know, everyone knows, but they're done in such a believable and fresh way. I mean, they're looks that you don't see in other posters. I'm just curious, you know, where uh, where those kind of came about and, and how did you decide which references were you using for creating those likenesses? Well, thank you very much for saying so. I mean, I really appreciate that. And thank you also for a, an interesting question, because I don't think I've been asked the question quite in this way. Um uh, the, the truth of the matter is that that what I try to do when I'm doing these posters is acknowledge the fact that there is a legacy of poster art that needs to be taken into consideration. Drew Struzan's magnificent work, um, John Alvin's work, uh, people like Richard Amsel or you know uh, Roger Castle, any of these people who have done the most amazing uh, Star Wars and Indiana Jones work. Um, you can't just go in there and make up your own poster mm-hmm. because not only are you going to confuse the fans because you have a, a brand that you need to conform with, 
but you're going to irritate art directors and you know and because they're expecting something that that does pay some kind of tribute to to an existing legacy of poster design and so what I do when I'm busy doing those things is try and come up with something that would evoke not only the emotion about the movie, but, but to make people feel that it's part of a family, a family of poster designs that might have been done, as I say, by Drew or Roger or you know, John. And so the look of them is very specific. Now, people often say, you know, the work that I do is, is reminiscent of Drew's work. Mm-hmm. Now that, of course, is high praise. I know Drew personally, and and you know you can't get a, a nicer comment than that. But it's designed in that way because that is the way that you are instructed to design the poster. And I know that I'm obliged to tie in with the legacy. So, so when it comes to actually choosing what gets involved. I might look at, 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 for example, when I did the 40th anniversary poster for A New Hope. The important thing about using any reference is to change it, especially with those early movies. With the early movies, there's very little good reference that you, that you are aware of. And the thing that, that I see many artists doing, and, and a lot of some official artists and a lot of, of junior or, or, or um, uh, part-time artists they take a reference of Luke Skywalker and they faithfully redraw it. Well, that's all well and good, but it, it doesn't add any value to it other than just to, sh- to show everybody that you can copy a photograph and right. you do it well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean anything. So to me, the important thing is to take, uh, take reference and to change it in some form. So to change the angle of the head, to change the body, to change the pose, um, to do any of these things, because it's, it's vitally important that unless the client comes to you and says, I want exactly that pose and exactly that face, which does sometimes happen, it's important to try and create something that is different so people haven't seen before. Now, in the, the um, a New Hope poster, I wanted to achieve a few things. The first one was to uh, achieve a, a design that reminded us of the magnificent Tom Young poster mm-hmm. that came out in, in 1977. Um, so the colors that I've used in that are very similar to the ones that Tom Young did. Now, bear in mind that I needed to, to design something that would appeal to a more modern audience. I couldn't make it as minimalistic as Tom Young's poster is or as magnificently understated as his is. So I had to still introduce some of the heads that you would have, some of the characters. But right. what I didn't want to do was I didn't want to overwork yet another poster as is so popular these days in the Marvel posters and things where you have a billion right. floating heads all wandering around you know it's just, yeah. it, it is it is disgusting the one thing that you <laughs> learn looking at drew struzan's posters is that less is more yes and you know if you look at any of his posters he hasn't got a million heads in them right. yet he's, he's still telling a story about a, a, a huge movie that's coming out but he's actively selects things that actually work. And I'm firmly of the same opinion that you look at it and you say, okay, well, we need to just introduce something. So with the New Hope poster, I concentrated mostly on the opening two chapters where you Mm -hmm. just see Luke, you see the droids, you see Leia, and you see Ben Mm -hmm. and Vader. Those are the main ones that we have. And in the end where you have the Vader character in the background and you have the Death Star and you have some of the fighters and things like that. Right. Um, yeah. And so I didn't, I specifically didn't put Harrison 
I specifically didn't put Chewie in there. I specifically mm-hmm. didn't put any of the other characters in there, which it, it received some interesting comment, especially from fans when they looked at some of the drawings and said, yes, but you've got to, without a Star Wars, with a Star Wars poster without Han Solo in it is, is ridiculous. You can't. <laughs> you can't have a poster like that. Now, I understand the passion and I understand what they're saying, but yeah. what I was more concerned about was cluttering up the poster with a billion heads and I didn't want to do that. I right, wanted well, to try and keep it understated a bit like Tom yeah. Young's poster right. was. Well, and you, you and so what the, I did uh, was... Uh, and Chewie with the Falcon. <laughs> exactly. That, that's exactly what I did. So what I did was I put the Falcon in, although the Falcon only came in much later in the story, but I put it okay. in and exactly for, why, for what you said. So we put them in almost by proxy by having the Falcon in the, the, um, the, the design, mm-hmm. which kept most of the fans happy. There were still some who were pretty angry that I hadn't <laughs> put them in. But, you know, uh, the one thing I, uh, I'm very comfortable with is I'm not going to keep everybody happy. Oh, it's yeah, just too bad. It's, it's, a, it's a good uh, realization to, to be comfortable with. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not going to get it right all the time. You do your best and, you know, that's all, that's all you can do. And, you know, with the, the Jedi poster as well, I mean, you're, you're capturing things that are, you know, essential to the film, but there's such a different look at it. I mean, the, the duel that you depict there, it's, it mm. evokes the Struzan classic image, but yeah. it's such a fresh angle on it. And it's one that, it's familiar, but it's different. So, yeah, it's just it's just. Oh, thanks again for saying so. Yeah. I sort of agonized quite a lot over that because one of the briefs was to put, you know, some form of, of duel between Luke and Vader in. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Drew's Drew's um, duel is that they are so simplistic in the way that they actually depicted. Right. And so I wanted to try and do that. So again, it looked like part of the family, but I didn't want to to do a Drew Struzan ripoff because right. I mean that is a pointless exercise. So it was a little bit of a conundrum for me to try and come up with something that that was have almost like a bit of a memory, mm-hmm. um, but not the same as as the one that Drew had done. So yeah. I'm, I'm pleased that you liked it. And also putting Han in the in the carbonite right. was you know rather rather than having him and Leia kissing as would be the normal yeah. picture that you would have, um, try and come up with something. And you would notice that there are no Ewoks in there because I hate the little things. <laughs> it's good to have an, an honest answer on on the Ewoks here. There's no other poster that depicts Han and carbonite, so that is that is just such an awesome diversion there. It's great. What we try to do was was not just come up with something as if as if somebody who'd been living on I don't know on on an ice moon somewhere had never seen the movie. <laughs> so you didn't want to. They might know that that Han Solo had been captured, you know, at the at the end of Empire, but they didn't know that he was going to come out again and hadn't seen the subsequent movie when it came out in in eighty three or whenever Jedi right. came out. Right. And so we we sort of we toyed with the idea of 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 just playing with the with, with a concept that maybe there would be somebody out there who wouldn't know that that Han Solo was actually out of the carbonite. So we <laughs> decided just to leave him in the carbonite. And yeah. that's, so that's how that one came about. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So I guess we should get to your most recent work, which was for Solo. And, you know, I have yeah. to say, I mean, this really stands out among all the other posters for this for this film. I mean, they, the other ones, while you could see the kind of look they were going for, they really just started mm. to get repetitive towards the end. And, and yours is yeah. so fresh and so different. And uh, it, I just it bums me out that it, it wasn't on billboards and you know places all over the world. And I wish it was. Mm. <laughs> 
But uh, oh, thank you. It again. did make it onto thank the side you. of a, a big building in Melbourne, right? It did. Yes, it did indeed. Now, the, the 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 project was interesting. Um, I I like some of the concepts that, or some of the the posters that Disney came out with for for Solo, but was not impressed to find out that the design had been stolen. Right. Um, right. You know, and that of course, that, but because of the fact that they already had their whole campaign running uh, you know they had to they had to settle with with the uh, the original artist i presume some kind of of um, compensation mm-hmm. and they then ran with the campaign as it was which which i thought was was unfortunate uh, you know and, and i certainly don't hold disney responsible it's the agency that they have designing those posters decided and the artist individual artist who made them decided he was going to do that and it's you know disney can't always know what has been done before what has been stolen before they would have done it in good faith and then had to deal with a mess that came about afterwards and i think that what happened with that is not only was the movie itself contentious in the fact that you know, Harrison wasn't in it and you had all the usual sort of fan anger about it. But right. it was also, in a way, sort of uh, sullied down a little bit by by the, the fact that things had been stolen. And, you know, it, it was just really unfortunate. You know, so I think that the posters were interesting and they were different. And, and I thought that they were a great idea. But I, I thought that ultimately it, it was a pity that that, that that was the story behind them. So where did things start with your project? Disney came to me and they said, we'd like you to do this um, piece for us. And uh, my first reaction to them was, you know, well, what would be really nice is if we don't do one with a million floating heads in it. Um, I'd like to avoid that if possible. And they were actually very receptive to that. And I have to be honest that Disney were wonderful in this whole exercise. They were incredibly um, flexible in their thinking. And uh, and I said to them, part of, part of the justification was, I said to them that the truth of the matter is that this poster and the movie, none of the actors do we associate with the movie at all. Aiden, we don't associate with Han Solo. Um, we don't associate Woody Harrelson with it or, or you know, any of the other characters. So to put their heads on the poster would be fine. But the fans aren't going to look at that and say, I want to go and see that movie because Aiden's in it or Woody Harrelson's in it. Not, a, not in the same way that you would do it if you'd put a poster with, with Harrison on it or Carrie or Mark. Right. They would have said, yes, I want to see that movie because not only is it Star Wars, but also those characters are in it. And so Disney said, well, that's absolutely great. So what do you want to do? So I said, well, the one character that we do know is Chewie. So let's put Chewie in. And for the rest, I just want to create this thing that's like the space cowboy thing, a bit like Clint Eastwood. Um, and so we, we create the, the, the movie post that is more about the, the, the feeling of, of the, um, the story rather than the specifics of the story. And I was very, very happy that they were incredibly receptive um, to that suggestion. And, uh, and literally, they just said, go for it. I probably did about six or seven comprehensive drawing for them to review. Um, there were some things I felt quite strongly about. Um, there was debate about the gun because, as you know, at some point they seemed to get rid of all the guns in the posters, and, right. which was a bit bit awkward. 
considering the fact that it's a Star Wars movie. But anyway, right, they, right. They, they, reversed, they reversed that very quickly, so, so we managed to avoid that. But other than that, they liked what I put forward ultimately, and, and the poster was, was painted. So um, it was just one of those incredibly enjoyable processes. Um, which don't come off, don't come around very often. Because sometimes these things can really be very difficult to work on. I can imagine. I mean, this this rendition of Chewbacca is just beautiful, and I'm I'm wondering, did <laughs> did you have? I'm just curious what your inspiration for that particular image was. There was it a combination like you were talking about before of certain things, or is there one reference photograph that, that kind of was the starting point for that? Because it's something you don't, there, I don't recognize was, it at all. It's, it's very unique. There was definitely a reference photograph that was a starting point of that, but I did obviously okay. change it as, yeah. as I try and do. You know, if you think back to the Crystal Skull, where I had all these great ideas, nobody said, look, you can't do this until only after I'd done the design. Um, in the case of Soto, we agreed up front that what we would do is only show things that people had seen, say, in the trailers or okay. in on magazines or whatever the case is. That, that uh, rendering of Chewie was based on, I think it was a cover of a magazine that, that, that he and Aiden were on, oh, uh, but okay. I, did, I did change it. And I got into a lot of trouble with that because it looks like Chewie's eyes are, are green, and of course his eyes are his eyes are blue. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, my thinking was that he's bathed in in yellow light. Light color eyes would react differently with um, with uh, yellow light, so that's mm-hmm. why I ended up with eyes that look a bit green. But I, I got into a little bit of trouble for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Always in the details. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, and how? I mean, I've, <laughs> I've dodged. I've dodged some amazing bullets along the way in my in my um, naivete um, <laughs> when it comes to fans, and uh, and I'm very grateful that I dodged them most of them. That's for sure. I've just been blown away at the the level of attention to detail that these guys have is just is terrifying, actually. Absolutely <laughs> that's, scary. That's a, yeah, terrifying. That's a good description. <laughs> it is. I mean, if I can quickly go back to a piece that I did of, of Luke Skywalker. Sure. Uh, yeah. It's a long, a long, thin panel that I did of Luke, which George has also bought. That particular piece, when I did it, I wanted to do a New Hope Luke, mm-hmm. and I wanted to do it sort of in the, the style of a poster that sort of Japanese in sort of flavor kind of thing or, or Eastern in flavor. But I wanted to show a, a Luke from A New Hope and I wanted to show his lightsaber. So what I, what I did was I, I got a picture of Luke and I knew it was you know, from A New Hope and I married it to a different body and I, the usual thing. And I, for, the, for the lightsaber, because I, I, I didn't have reference, I actually I built my own. So <laughs> I found pieces online of, of the, the lightsaber and I built it and I painted it. And when the the first fan who came to me to discuss it, and it was at one of the celebration um, convention, okay. he came to me and he said to me, I have to thank you for what you've done. And I said to him, well, I'm, I'm glad you like it. And he said, that reference for Luke's face was taken on the 15th of August. And it was it was done two weeks before his car accident. And I looked at this guy and I said, and I thought to myself, you've got to be joking. I mean, you honestly know the date at that actual reference photograph was taken. And then he went further and he said to me, and I've got to thank you again for making the lightsaber right. So I said to him, well, you know, I said, of course, you know, it had to be correct. Little knowing, I didn't know that, in fact, the lightsaber had changed from movie to movie. At that point, I didn't know. Uh-huh. I thought it was the same one that they just used. And fortunately, <laughs> I'd chosen the correct one. And he said to me also, the clamp that's on that lightsaber is at three o'clock. 
And the only time that it's at three o'clock in the movie is when Ben takes it out of the box to give it to Luke. Because for the rest of the movie, it's actually swiveled around the pommel and it's actually at nine o'clock or something like that. And I broke into a cold sweat because oh, I just okay. thought this is like, this is genuinely terrifying <laughs> that these guys have so much knowledge about this. And, I, I, and if, if it taught me anything was to respect the fans even more yeah. and to try yeah. harder to make sure that, that if I do an Indiana Jones poster, that the reference for the Indiana Jones is the correct one from the movie, that the hat that he wears in that movie is the one from that movie because the hat changes all the time right. and that the jacket is the same. And the same thing with the Star Wars characters, suddenly realizing that, now hold on a second, it's not just a simple thing of making these characters generic they have to be specific so it, it, it's something that I, that I learned very early on um, but as I say I managed to dodge a few bullets because I, I was so clueless I didn't, I didn't know Coming back to Solo in terms of uh, where the composition came from did you have any uh, other starting points or other roads you were considering taking with it before it kind of came to be what it is? Yes uh, if, if you look at the, the comps that are, have been posted online I started with a very simple um, concept, and that's sort of like a, a, an old vintage Clint Eastwood, which might just be the character with his blaster, okay. and a very yeah. simple background. So those two, two of those that were, were very, very simple indeed. And then I was asked to do one that had more content to it. Okay. So going towards more of a traditional movie poster kind of design, which I then did. Uh, they liked it very much, asked for changes. Um, I came up with another one, which I thought was really quite exciting because I thought that maybe what I can do is create something that almost looks like a comic um, comic book panels. So that you have uh, sort of panels of information across the poster, which might, it, it evokes a kind of pop art style that I was chasing and something sure. uniquely different. I liked the idea very much. They liked it as well, but felt that divided it up too much. And I think they also probably felt they didn't want it to look like a comic, which is fair. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's got to stand in its own right. And the final uh, design that I did, again, looking back at, at, at the whole uh, movie and, and what I was trying to achieve, I, I always knew that I wanted to have this sort of big gunslinger pose of Solo. So I moved him over to the right-hand side of the composition um, and Chewie to the left of that um, because compositionally I knew that your eye would be, because the, the, the blaster, the hand was so imposing, that your eye would immediately be drawn to those two elements as the focal point. I wanted them to move almost immediately onto Chewbacca mm -hmm. because you know, the blaster is quite a hostile thing. I wanted the connection with the audience as far as Chewie goes. Um, then I left underneath sort of Chewie's um, shoulder in the, in the middle of the composition. There's a, a blue panel, which is the droid. And so your eye immediately drops straight down to that and then onto the new Falcon, which is at the bottom, which I thought was important to include. Um, because the design had changed. And then to the left of that, at the bottom left, there's a, the, the silhouette, the well-known silhouette from the trailers of Aiden as he goes into the, the, the bar and, uh, and Lando is sitting facing him. And that silhouette was very iconic in the trailers. And I just felt that although I didn't want to show Aiden's face, it would be a good idea to embody the character of the new actor in something that, that the fans had seen before and were comfortable with. 
right. and that's why I dropped him in into the composition. Um, and and you know your eye just continues up to the top uh, left, which is the sort of queue of people. Early in the sequence in the movie, there's a um, where where they go to that. It almost looks like a uh, train station. And then the eye lead, uh, leads itself back down towards the blast again. So it, it stays within the composition. Uh, and and it was designed so that it, it hopefully evoked, as I say, the spirit of the movie rather than specifics of the movie, with the exception of Chewie, who I wanted to be well-featured. And, of course, now that we've seen the movie, we know that he, he was incredibly prominently featured. Now, there's, it's hard to find a more warm or welcoming presence than Chewbacca, I think. So I think that, that makes a lot of <laughs> no, sense. You're right. oh, lovely character. So, uh, so how long did this piece, you know, from start to finish, how long did the process take for you? It was relatively uh, quick because, you know, firstly, because uh, Disney and Lucasfilm were so incredibly supportive of what I was trying to do. What normally takes most of the time, as you can appreciate, is coming up with a concept that they approve. Now, the reason also why I do full-color concepts is because of fewer chances of there being a miscommunication of an idea. Now, when I did, uh, say, for example, a poster for uh, the Crystal Skull or for Raiders of the Lost Ark, I could do a black-and-white drawing, and George would look at it and he'd say, yes, I like it, and go ahead. And because he had the vision to see what it was I was trying to achieve, uh, whereas I found that other people less skilled than George um, need more information. And the last thing I wanted was to do um, L7 in blue and then for them to turn around and say, oh, that should have been red. We thought it was going to be red and that was never the idea. So I do them very detailed and in full color. But though the process of getting the approvals done can often take months. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can draw, do 30 drawings before before you've you've made everybody happy. In the old days, it was, it was easier because George would literally take a look at it and say, yes, I like it or no, I don't. <laughs> and you could yeah. then move on. Whereas now you've got, you know, a whole team of people that you've got to work through and everyone's got an opinion. And in some cases, it can actually cause a lot of a lot of mayhem in, in timing. Sure. Now that didn't happen with this with this particular job, so they were very supportive and and were very very clear in the way they they conveyed their their comments. So it was a lot easier. So I would say that to get the concept signed off, and there's always a delay because you know I'll send them off to Disney and then they've got to send them up to Lucasfilm. So it normally takes you know probably about five days for me to get a response. That's what happens when you live on the other side of the world. But uh, um, I suppose to do the concepts took about a month, and then to paint the painting once it's once it's been signed off, it takes probably about six or seven days to paint okay. it. And yeah. the painting is is big; it's the same size as a as a normal one sheet poster uh, artwork would be. So it's it's a relatively big big uh, piece of art. And uh, so, where where's the original going to end up this time? Is is George interested? No, uh, Disney actually bought it from me before I even painted it. Oh, okay. So they, they which was very nice of them, and uh, and then they did some kind of deal uh, in Australia with one of the cinema chains here, mm-hmm. and they had an online um, competition, and oh, and okay. I believe uh, last week that someone someone won it. Uh, but they had to be they had to prove that they were they were good fans, you know, or really <laughs> serious fans or good, whatever. Uh, so good I was right. I was. Very nice, yeah. No, so they they got a twenty four thousand dollar prize. So I'm sure they were very happy. Wow, so, 
That's wow. That's uh, astounding. Um, well, so, I was happy because you know they 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 bought it from me, and at the end of the day, um, they they are perfectly entitled to do what they want with it. They paid me full price for it, so it's not it's not a problem. And it's as with all these things, they they it's their prerogative to do what they want with it. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad that um, you know things went smoothly. I mean, it it really is such a a great piece, and I thank you, know, you very I'm, much. Did it get to be displayed in any theaters in Australia, or is it uh, more just for this one promotion? It was used in the online marketing. They didn't use it in the theaters because the other posters were already out, so so it, it wasn't displayed there. It was displayed in a few places at some smaller sort of events that took place, but it was used online, and Disney tells me that when they revealed it online, because they're using all their social media, the local, so Southern, uh, Australia, uh, Southeast Asia, and New Zealand. Um, it was revealed simultaneously to over 19 million fans wow. in one, one drop. <laughs> so it, it got an enormous amount of exposure. Um, you know, so although it wasn't in the theaters, just because of, uh, as I say, the other posters were already out, and uh, and so it, it wasn't it wasn't used in the theaters themselves, with, with exception of a few a few areas. It was used on that that massive billboard uh, that was about six stories tall in Melbourne, yeah. and uh, and it was used in a few other places. The idea behind this one was to use it in the online marketing of the movie more more than than in the theaters themselves. Because as Disney said to me themselves, the truth of the matter is that in the theaters they might get say twenty thousand people seeing the artwork. Online they got nineteen million people at one shot seeing the artwork. You know? Yeah. So the value that they get out of a thing like that is is enormous. Which of yeah. course is a new way of, of the world. So yeah, it's not I mean, surprising. It, it's just movie ad- advertising in general that the model is is shifted and, and the, the Very turnover much. is is so quick. Yeah, yeah. No, it's no longer. Unfortunately, movies are no longer a a an occasion as they were. You know, when 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 we were young. Yeah. Um, now, now they expect it almost. You know, it, it's like your your average entertainment. It's no longer, well, you know, in next month we're going to go off and watch this movie, and we're going to take the whole day off, and we're going to buy popcorn, we're going to do all these things, as it used to be. You know, you used to look forward to those things for weeks before you'd go and see a movie. Right now, you yeah. know, it's just you, know, you go into Netflix and you can see any damn movie you like. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of of solo, did you did you enjoy it? I thought it, I thought it was amazing. I I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. I walked into the movie with no expectations really because, you know, I hadn't been exposed to uh, much of the behind the scenes stuff as I had. So, for example, with other projects I'd worked on, so this one I hadn't. So I didn't go into it with any expectations. I didn't. I specifically didn't want to to be too grumpy about Aiden doing the Han Solo thing because obviously after having drawn Harrison you know over a thousand times yeah. for Lucasfilm over over the years I've done it I'm I'm very fond of, of, of him and, and, and the way he has depicted the characters. But in the end I walked out of the movie and bar a few things that I thought were unnecessary. I was thoroughly entertained. I thought it was a great Star Wars movie. And I thought that they did a. I thought they did an epic job. I thought Ron Howard did a sensational job. I thought Aiden did a great job of of making the character his own, rather than trying to um, replicate um, Harrison's interpretation of the character. I thought uh, Chewbacca was just awesome. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and I thought that the design and the sets and things were, were spectacular. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a great show. 
Yeah, yeah, same here. And speaking of your your poster, the fact that the two, to me anyway, how they were so uh, perfectly paired, and the fact that you you weren't all that exposed to it, I think that speaks a lot to how how, how successful the work you did turned out. So you know, congrats. Oh, thank you. Again. It's very very kind of you. Thank you. No, it's very kind of you. I've been very blessed, uh, not only by George personally, um, but by Lucasfilm themselves for many years, and uh, and. I regard them with particular fondness. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to get back again to visit them all again at, at some point, as I try and do fairly regularly. So it, it's been a wonderful association. And as I said, working with Disney on the, on Solo was, was nothing more than just sheer enjoyment. They were amazing to work with and, uh, and were very supportive of everything. And we are, of course, discussing other projects. That's really good to hear. I hope we'll be seeing your work again with Star Wars before too long. Uh, I hope so. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I can't, I can't say for sure, but it depends on on sort of the sort of the people who make the choices. Um, we're definitely going to be discussing a few things, and maybe not only in the Star Wars um, uh, world, but in and, and others as well. Um, and of course, Indiana Jones coming up as well. You know, that one is of particular interest to me too. So I think that that uh, hopefully it won't be too long before something else comes out. But uh, in, in today's modern technology where everything's digital, there's no doubt that, that the digital realm is where people prefer the art to be rather than traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore, you know, the opportunity that I have, unless I, I, I move to digital, which of course I can do very easily uh, because, as I said, I, I still work in digital every day of my life today. Um, it's just a choice. And unless I make that choice to move digitally, um, the work that I get will be few and far between. It's not something that's suddenly going to have a resurgence. But I'm sure that, that we'll have something to show, Good. hopefully not long. Good. Well, I really look forward to it. So where, where can people find you and your work? Uh, the easiest place, uh, I mean, obviously Facebook and Instagram, um, I'm most active on. I'm a complete idiot when it comes to Twitter. I don't, I don't understand <laughs> how it works and I don't understand why people, you know, need to post things on Twitter, but I do do my best on Twitter as well. Of course my my website does carry things on it, although the most the most recent stuff is always on social media. Um it'll be on Facebook and uh, and Instagram is probably the best place to find me. And you'll find me under Mark Rots R A T S and uh and uh, hopefully people will enjoy what they see. Great. Well, uh, thank you again so much, Mark, for coming on the podcast. And uh, you know, I really pleasure. hope we'll, thank you. we'll get to cross paths again soon. Sounds good to me. And thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And thanks for some great questions. My deepest gratitude to Mark for a fascinating conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. Be sure to check out the show notes and the episode post on StarWarsAtTheMovies.com for further reading on the Stirland City and a glimpse at some of the great artwork that Mark discussed, including his gem for Solo. You'll also find links to his Facebook page, Instagram feed, and his website where you can see even more of his wonderful work. For all the latest on the rest of this project, you can follow on Instagram at at StarWarsAtTheMovies and the site's Facebook page. You can join in on the discussion on the Facebook group, and you can always reach me via email at StarWarsAtTheMovies at gmail.com. Huge thanks to everyone that provided solo photos for the theatrical gallery on the website. 
It's the most extensive yet, with 8 states and 14 cities from the US and 10 countries internationally represented. Please keep them coming, it's really great. As for the podcast, if you have a chance to leave a rating or review on iTunes, they're incredibly appreciated. We'll be heading to the Golden State of California for the next episode, which should hopefully be out before too long. Until then, thanks for listening, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun.